This podcast episode is being recorded on what was the ancestral land of the Muskogee. We teach us. Welcome to the We Teach Us podcast, a space to reimagine our education system. This is episode four, and I'm your facilitator, Ryan Dalton. Let's get started. Do now. All right, today's Do Now, I ask people, what did you learn about Native Americans in school? That they were... Some of them are savage, and then there were ones like the ones who ate with the pilgrims. But after that, they started fighting. So they lost their land, which caused them to fight. So it made them think that they were all savage, when in actuality, they just wanted their land. Actually, I was discussing with my children just yesterday, and they asked if they still do this, but I was pulled out for Indian education, we called it. And so about 12 of us, maybe, who met whatever blood requirement, we were pulled out of our classes and sent to Indian ed, we called it, um, when I was in elementary and middle school. Um, so we learned a lot, but it, that wasn't in the general classroom setting. Mm, with Native Americans, mm, they play like an important role in like the way that we live now. I think I believe they play like somewhat like an important role, like ancestors somewhere, something like that. What did I learn about Native Americans in school? I didn't learn. We didn't have. Um, I never. We didn't have a lot in our history books that we were taught that about Native Americans. It was very um, brief. Um, it may have been you know, a couple of sections, but um, just really the basics um, of, of um, it, it wasn't much, because I can't remember much about Native Americans. It wasn't much. Hmm. Not a whole lot. Um, nothing current. We learned the little things about, you know, that's been a while, so, you know, I'm not a history teacher uh, putting that out there. Um, but not a whole lot. It's just, you know, the trail of tears and you know, um, I wish we knew more about some of the art artifacts that they did, and um, and I, I knew that uh, the sad thing I always felt bad because that they had to leave their home as a as a kid reading that, and it's like um, that we really care, and you know we should care, and my me being a minority, I'm like I just always felt bad for those people, and and then the fact that they was sharing and trying to um, help somebody thought they need help that turned on them so I just you know I always feel bad about that um from school I just learned about Pocahontas and how they was like the first Indian tribe that helped it some way in the government but really I feel Indians and blacks was the first people to find the United States but you know in our history in school really don't learn too much about that side of culture. I feel we should learn more like that culture, well, culturalized history. Hmm. Well, I didn't learn much about Native Americans. Um, pretty much um, in my social studies classes, uh, I was uh, 
taught how they help the Europeans um, come over here and learn how to cultivate and things of that nature from the land, but it was never um, elaborated on the real aspects of the Native Americans as we, sh as I know now, as I've gotten older, how uh, inferential um, they have been part of this country and in, in all of the situations they had to face over the years uh, dealing with European imperialism. This Week in the News. All right, this is This Week in the News, and here with me I have my lovely... Ooh. Yeah, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> lovely number one co-teacher, my real-life partner, and my wife, Ronnie's Dalton. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Great. <laughs> I already knew that. <laughs> All right. So um, I think last time I started it off, so I'll let you go first. What's oh, your first article? Okay, thank you. Okay. This is coming from blackenterprise.com and the title is LeBron James announces transition housing for students in need at his I Promise school. Love it. This is a quote from the article. James announced that his I Promise School in Akron, Ohio, is partnering with graduate hotels to launch the I Promise Village, a transitional housing opportunity for families in need. That's amazing. It really is. He um, announced on Twitter, this is about more than just getting kids to school. This is about keeping them alive. This is a place that will allow our families time and opportunities to grow while not worrying if they'll have a roof over their head. That's amazing. I mean, that just completely eliminates some issues that students might have coming into the classroom, that their worries and things, um, it eliminates that and allows them to just focus on their education. Yeah, I love that he's creating an, a, a community for students that are attending his school and showing care and concern and support for their families. He also says, Initially, our work was focused on helping these kids earn an education, but we found that it is impossible to help them learn if they are struggling to survive, mm. if they are hungry, if they have no heat in a freezing winter, if they live in fear for their safety, James expressed to CNN. We want this place to be their home where they feel safe, supported, and loved, knowing we are right there with them every step of the way as they get back on their feet. Amazing. So incredible. I wish I wish that we could see this replicated and I don't think I don't know if it, it would be possible, but I right. wish we could see this type of it, not not just this, but also his school is, is great. Um, right. Everything I've read and seen about it is amazing. I wish we could see it replicated around the country. Absolutely. It's just it's just incredible. Yeah, I never um, you know, I'm I'm not a huge I don't really follow NBA um and uh not really like a huge basketball sports fan as you know but um <laughs> in the recent years I've become a huge fan of LeBron James not because of basketball but because of these efforts and it's really been inspiring for me to see yeah he he gets it you know he he understands that students need to feel loved and supported to succeed and he's doing exactly that yeah it's amazing all right, so my first article is from The New Republic, and the title is A Charter School Gets Canceled for Wanting to Teach Indigenous History. Wow. 
I would say, can you believe this? But absolutely. <laughs> that's the unfortunate thing. <laughs> right. So let me just read the sort of first portion of the article. It says, on Tuesday, the North Carolina Charter Schools Advisory Board voted to revise its recommendation for approval of a charter school set to open in Robeson County. Robeson County is the home of Lumbee Tribe, a state-recognized native nation that is the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River. The reason for the reversal, according to board member Lindelin Kakadelis, was that the proposed curriculum was too indigenous. Too indigenous too indigenous wow yeah i mean you know right now vast majority of curriculum across the states is like completely lacking in indigenous history zero to little indigenous yeah and now (laughs) studies going on this lady is is saying that it was too indigenous um here's a quote from her she said I did not find one thing in the book that talked about the greatness of America, Cacadella said. Now let me make it perfectly clear. America has sins. There are things I wish we had never done, slavery included. Bad marks on our country, but we learn from them and we've changed and we're not what we used to be. I've got to say that everything I found was divisive instead of bringing unity. We have learned from <laughs> right. So, so she's saying <laughs> we've mistake. we've learned we from have. our mistake. No, we have not. She's saying we've changed. No, we have not. Um, she's saying we're not what we used to be. Well, I mean, if she literally means like we're not the same people that used to live here, then right. okay, I'll give her that. Um, and then she said that everything she found was divisive instead of bringing unity, and wow. that's that sort of. That's that sort of idea of like when you're more outraged about someone calling out racism than the actual racism, right. or you're more outraged about someone calling out against injustice than the actual injustice. Exactly. I mean, history in America is divisive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it continues to be. And this is a prime example where... They're shutting down, a, like the school didn't even open yet. Yeah. It was merely like a proposal, right? right? Right, So here's another quote from the article. It says, the decision was handed down in the middle of Native American Heritage Month, and the reasoning behind it reeked of a uniquely white fear of losing control of the national historical narrative. So, I mean, it, it's very obvious what's being said, right. even though it might be said in a coded way. Uh, it's very clear what what they're saying here and for this to be happening like this article said in the middle of native american heritage month that's insult to injury absolutely it's a deeper blow so here's another interesting quote from the article native children from stories passed down by our elders know how the u.s treated our parents and grandparents hearing this reality taught honestly in the classroom is monumentally important as a form of representative education but ultimately, Native children are not the only ones who need to hear it most. Exactly. This really comes back to the conversation of representation. Right. That representation is not just important, that certain marginalized groups are also see themselves in the curriculum and in the lessons. That people who are not part of those groups hear right. from those voices. Absolutely. Um, and that's how we will start to see change when people are exposed to all these various voices and histories and narratives and not just their own so basically she's saying if we can continue to perpetuate these lies that represent america as this amazing thing we don't 
we don't want to open a school that's going to but teach the truth. Yeah, teach the truth. They they don't want to teach the truth. Wow. So that's devastating. Definitely. Let's hear uh, about your second article. Okay. This second article is coming from teamvogue.com and the title is It's Time 2020 Presidential Candidates Take Action to Dismantle the School to Prison and Deportation Pipeline. Yes. Can we just take a moment to really um, acknowledge the work that Teen Vogue is doing these days? It yes. is more than just a teen uh, magazine or online source. I mean, they are doing some amazing work over there. It really is incredible what they're doing. Yeah. So that was just my little side thing <laughs> when, you, when you said that from Team Vogue. Well, this is a really moving and brilliant piece written by 16-year-old Anthony Villaneda Martinez. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he is the youth leader at Latinos Unidos Siempre. It details his own personal experience with the school to prison and deportation pipeline. Wow. So he, along with hundreds of other youth leaders like him, are calling on presidential candidates to sign onto the youth mandate for presidential candidates and permanently dismantle the school to prison deportation pipeline. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. Here's a quote from the article. It says, and this is, you know, him speaking. Over the last couple of months, I've seen presidential candidates roll out their plans for public education and criminal justice reform. From where I stand, what's noticeably missing is their unequivocal commitment to tackling the school to prison and deportation pipeline directly. Hmm. It includes demands that should be obvious. Things like stopping the provision of military equipment to school districts. Right. Yes, this actually happens. Or ending the use of strip searches, corporal punishments, and confinement to solitary rooms. Yes, all these happen too. It demands funding for things that schools should or are already required to do, but are often too underfunded to implement, like providing equal education opportunities for students with disabilities and low-income students and funding mental health care services for all students. Yeah, I mean, it's... Basic things that yeah. really should not even be in a proposal. Like shouldn't have things, to be. Right, it should not have to be. But here we are. All right, so my second article is from Rapid City Journal. It's a very local article. Uh, the title is Native American Students Left Behind by South Dakota Education System. The article is basically highlighting how South Dakota education system is completely failing the Native students in the state. Not surprising. Um, yeah, and it's, I guess, also what we see in this article is not really that far off from sort of the national data. It sort of is in line with the national data in most states. Um, so here's a quote from the article. It says, results from state and national standardized testing shows how dire the situation has become for Native American students who continue to perform far worse than white students in South Dakota across almost all measures of academic achievement. During the 2018-19 school year, fewer than one in four Native American students in grades three to eight and grade 11 was rated as proficient in reading and writing on state standardized tests. Roughly one in seven Native American students was proficient in math and just one in wow. eight was proficient in science. Yikes. And we know that that's not speaking to the students' right. um, abilities. It's speaking to access. It's speaking to how the schools are serving them right. or not. Exactly. Let me say that. So uh, 
The article also says the 2019 National Assessment of Educational Progress found that the state's Native American fourth and eighth graders were between 25 and 30 points behind their white peers in math and reading. Wow. So hold 25 to 30 points. On-time graduation rates for Native American students also are lower than every other racial group in the state at 54% compared to the rate of 85% for students of all other backgrounds, according to the state report card. Wow. So the article continues to go on and just talk about various injustices that have sort of led to this, right. even gives an account of a, um, some of the students speaking about it and, and their experiences. Um, but it's really just, as I said, it's it's kind of in line with the national right. sort of performance of Native American students. And like I said, it doesn't speak to ability right. is speaking to how we as a country, how our education system as a supposed education system is completely failing this entire population of students. And when you think about all the trauma that Native people have already experienced, you know, through our federal government, this is just another extension of them being failed yet again. Um, right. And it's, it's just unfortunate because we talked about an article just a couple minutes ago, this hostility that these um, this woman had about curriculum that right. mentioned Native Americans. That is, I mean, culturally responsive and appropriate. And that same attitude of rejecting that is, again, manifested in situations like this. Right. But yeah, it's 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 just ridiculous that our system is underserving certain populations of students and basically just completely failing them. That's, that's so unfortunate. Well, that's kind of a heavy note to end on. You know, I think we need LeBron James to get involved in this too. <laughs> LeBron James. <laughs> LeBron James. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, all jokes aside, LeBron James, the, the what he's doing with that his school. His vision. His vision and ones like it. Right. Um, we He's not the only one who has school like that. Um, really is a, a model for what education could look like when you completely serve the community you're supposed to serve. Yes, when you center the student and their needs and the hope for their success, that's that's where it's at. That's right. So LeBron James, give me a call. Let's let's start some more schools. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All well, right. <laughs> well, that was this week in the news. Uh, thank you as always for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Bye. I do. We are not honest about our past, which makes it next to impossible to be honest about our present and our future. This is especially true for most white Americans. For all of our lives and all of the lives of those who lived before us, since the inception of this country, we have been spoon-fed an ahistorical, romanticized version of American history, one that conveniently revisions and or erases the histories of marginalized people, one that deceitfully canonizes and worships white settler colonialists, one that villainizes those who countered the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal American fantasy, a history that sits at the very foundation of white America's institutionalized privilege and the systemic oppression of others. Though many of the injustices we see around us today were carved out by our nation's history, 
Because we as a collective have chosen to be dishonest about that history, we are often rendered bewildered, in denial, and helpless to the inequity and brutality we see around us. Monuments of discrimination and violence that were erected by our past that continue to tower over us today, influencing all that we do. We are a lie. A lie that was created by the greed, cruelty, and lust for power and expansion. A lie created by imperialism, the ideology of extending a country's rule over foreign nations, often by military force or by gaining political and economic control over other areas. In America, those original Europeans who came indoctrinated with their imperialist ideologies manifested these ideas through colonialism, and most specifically what is known as settler colonialism. Now, we are told our history through the perspective of settler colonialists who raped, pillaged, and plundered the land and lives of the indigenous people who were here before them. We are falsely told that those Europeans came to establish civilization for the first time while simultaneously and fraudulently perpetuating the erroneous falsity that Native Americans were, quote, savage and uncivilized. Though before Columbus's 1492 arrival to the Americas, there were an estimated 5 to 15 million indigenous people, making up around 600 or more tribes, nations, bands, pueblos, communities, and native villages, all with rich histories, cultures, established communities, and practices. The America we are broadly taught about in schools, imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal America as we know it today, was said to have started with the arrival of white Europeans. The native inhabited land now known as America was looked upon with the imperial gaze of those who saw opportunity, abundant resources, an incredible landscape, and a new frontier. In European settler colonialist efforts to dominate and inhabit this country's land, over the course of hundreds of years, millions of indigenous people were barbarically subjected to a systemic genocide through deculturalization, disease, and murder, whilst many of those who remained were victims of forced assimilation, enslavement, and or displacement. Over the course of those years, over 500 treaties were made with indigenous tribes, and all of those treaties were also broken, changed, or nullified when it served the U.S. government's interests. Over the course of those years, the settler colonial U.S. government authorized over 1,500 wars, attacks, and raids on indigenous people. It is reported that by the close of the Indian Wars in the late 19th century, fewer than 238,000 indigenous people remained. And now, in present-day America, what we are taught about America, about ourselves, is through this imperialist filter. And what we are taught about indigenous people is often non-existent, minimal, or warped. We have amalgamated the hundreds of rich, unique, and distinct indigenous cultures, practices, languages, and people groups into one generic, homogenous group we refer to as American Indians or Native Americans. Then, adding insult to injury, we have idealized, mystified, and appropriated their culture where we see fit, using it however and whenever we want, even with the common derogatory practice of using their names and likenesses as mascots. Though there are entire native-led initiatives to stop these practices because these practices play a role in the perpetuation of negative stereotypes and oppression, most especially when the team and the mascot names are racist slurs like Redskin. Seeing our history through the imperialist perspective does not just impact the way we see our past in America. It impacts the way we see our present. It impacts the way we see the entire world. Our public schools are one of the main places this nationalist imperialism is fostered and reinforced. We see how global concepts taught in our classrooms across the country are introduced to students through the lens of imperialist American exceptionalism and are told from the angle of European imperialists. 
For instance, rather than focusing on the rich histories of indigenous populations of people who inhabited Africa or South America before and or during European conquest, the history of those places has often focused on the narratives of the imperialists, simultaneously painting the original people as people in need of being civilized, ruled, and or, quote, cultured. We can see how this imperialist ideology impacts the way we see the world around us through both our domestic and international policies. Domestically, we see how imperialism and white supremacy guide our political climate, determining who are, quote, acceptable immigrants and who are not. We can clearly see how these ideologies specifically discriminate against black and brown immigrants, even those who are fleeing the most atrocious conditions and seeking refuge. Internationally, we see how imperialist ideology, often teamed up with white supremacy, guides who we trade with or who we don't, who are our allies and who are not, who and where we go to war with and who we don't, and where we seek to expand our own power, influence, and political and economic control. We can trace these ideas we possess of where we have the right to invade, who we have the right to murder, what countries we have the right to take resources from, to the ideas taught in our history classrooms. However, it is not merely our history classes that hold this imperialist bias and influence. The imperialist perspective influences all of our curriculum. Most of our structures, policies, pedagogy, and practices are modeled after the European imperialist framework, leaving no room for alternative ways of learning, knowing, and being, specifically and especially the ways of indigenous people and other marginalized groups. These practices and pedagogies based in European models are often stifling and oppressive, seeing students as empty vessels to be filled by the teachers rather than active participants in their education and the education of others. This is what Paulo Freire referred to as the banking model in his most famous book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. There, he also described more liberatory educational practices based in dialogue, critical consciousness, education as a mutual process, and education as a practice of freedom. Unironically, teachers who successfully employ these practices in their classrooms often begin to rid their educational spaces of oppressive and harmful practices rooted in imperialist ideologies. As educators, I believe it is important to actively and intentionally dismantle imperialism in our classrooms, school communities, and the broader system. Sometimes, it might just be we don't know where to start, but the best place to start is always exactly where we are. It's Thanksgiving week in America. All across the country, school children will once again be exposed to a romanticized, fabricated tale of pilgrims and Indians, celebrating the famous feast that never really happened, at least not in the way that it has always been portrayed. Preschool and elementary students will be adorned with their construction paper cutout pilgrim hats and their culturally insensitive paper Indian headdresses. They will sing songs, they'll put on pageants and plays, and we will continue to perpetuate the whitewashing of American history, underplaying the atrocities the original colonists enacted on the indigenous people who were here first, simultaneously erasing their history. We could start to dismantle imperialism by ceasing to carry on with this ahistorical work of fiction we tell every year. We could begin to tell the truth. We could download one of the many lesson plans and or resources that tell the truth about Thanksgiving, the truth about imperialism, and the negative impact it had on indigenous populations. And it doesn't have to end with Thanksgiving. We can refuse to acknowledge the day that is known as Christopher Columbus Day. Wait, 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 wait. Christopher who? Oh, nah, nah, nah. The only Christopher we acknowledge is Wallace. All right? All right. And from here on out, celebrate and recognize that day as Indigenous Peoples Day. We can look at ways our content, curriculum, pedagogy, and practices perpetuate harmful imperialist ideas and halt those occurrences. 
We can highlight the voices, teachings, histories, and varying cultures of indigenous people in America, also recognizing that indigenous people's history did not begin with Thanksgiving and end with the last of the Indian Wars. And it is not only limited to the hardships brought by the hands of the colonists. In the opening chapter of her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz said, Writing U.S. history from an indigenous people's perspective requires rethinking the consensual national narrative. That narrative is wrong or deficient, not in its facts, dates, or details, but rather in its essence. Inherent in the myth we've been taught is an embrace of settler colonialism and genocide. The myth persists, not for a lack of free speech or poverty of information, but rather for an absence of motivation to ask questions that challenge the core of the scriptive narrative of the origin story. How might acknowledging the reality of U.S. history work to transform society? I would say greatly. If we are able to muster the courage to be honest about our past, truly confronting the transgressions of our ancestors, I believe we will be in a better position to fight the injustice we see around us. Injustice that was birthed from those very transgressions. We have to stop feeding into lies about who we are and where we come from. We have to be honest about ourselves. We have to be honest about our history. We have to dismantle imperialism. We do. This episode's guests are activists Valerie Adams and Tori Jackson, who are fighting to abolish Columbus Day in Montgomery, Alabama and beyond. Though they are still working against great resistance in Montgomery, they were successfully able to get Tuskegee, Alabama to abolish Columbus Day and recognize it as Indigenous Peoples Day this October for the first time. They are passionate change makers, advocates for indigenous rights, and it is an honor to have them with us on this episode. All right. Thank you so much for joining me on the We Teach Us podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Okay. So my first question is about some activism related to what is known as Columbus Day here in America. And mm-hmm. I put Columbus Day in quotes. You two work to abolish Columbus Day in Tuskegee and in its place establish Indigenous Peoples Day. Can you briefly tell us about what that process and why it was important to you all? Um, well, where we started was the work session in Montgomery. And uh, they just, they were really, really hesitant about it. But... Um, Though they were hesitant about it, we ended up meeting uh, Chris Adams' father, Archley, and he um, he advised us to go to Tuskegee, and I've been to Tuskegee before. Tuskegee actually has a very large black Native American population, and so when we went there, um, the community is just, it was so different being in Tuskegee because everybody was was kind of chiming in uh, during their work session, and it just, it was total opposite. But, I mean, they were, they were all for it, and it was important, it's important now to change this, and I feel like now is the right time to do it, because it'll raise some eyebrows and make people ask, you know, why did they, why did they change it now? And the thing is, we just now have a voice again to do that. Well, I think that um, going to Montgomery was more of the catalyst for us, um, and getting those introductions and into Tuskegee. Um, when we got there, they were community-based program. We could see that already, 
But the biggest part of that, knowing, you know, knowing what we knew about Tuskegee was just trying to remind them of the people that they were and, and whose land that we stood, you know, whose land that they stood on or them being the remaining ancestry of the people that have gone, you know, onto Oklahoma. But with Montgomery, I think that what we're trying to accomplish with Montgomery, um, the leadership that's in place, I don't think they can conceptualize that past, you know, we can't change it, you know, mm. and they could, they, they seriously could. And so um, in, in Montgomery, you're pushing to get Columbus Day changed, the, the name changed and the whole focus changed to Indigenous People's Day. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. A lot of racism people aren't realizing is very systematic. Mm. So even though they think that it's not a big deal, Colum- the, the title of Columbus Day is not, is not a big deal, it is because it's systematic racism. Mm. Right. And so, I mean, in my mind, it's it's a big deal for all kids because we've seen these imperialists, these um, colonialists who have been seen as heroes and taught as mm-hmm. heroes when they have did atrocious things. And now we're still celebrating them. And right. I'm sure a lot of people today would not want to see their children being fed to dogs if they didn't find a certain amount of gold. That's disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's 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 do let's kind of do that sort of exercise for people who don't understand how atrocious Columbus was. What are some examples of things he did in history? Are you all able to speak to that? So Columbus, in coming from Spain, trying to acquire more gold, uh, the things that ensued after hitting the wrong obviously he didn't land in the wrong place <laughs> right you know but what he did find was people he found the Teano people immediately and started to take them back and had them enslaved and so they were almost completely decimated um the policies that happened after that point with the doctrine of discovery made it so the church was able to claim whatever they wanted to claim. Mm-hmm. And that is the principle that was used from the government hence for going forward to implement it in that fashion. And then his journal um, was just strange because it, if I'm not mistaken, it's talking about how godlike these people were. And then at the very end of it, he says uh, they will make good slaves. Mm. Just messed up. Yeah. So I mean, it's he—he he was a rapist. He—he he was right. extremely racist. He was a horrible person, a murderer, and it's someone that we still celebrate. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things named after him. There are statues. Schools. There's a whole day. A what? Schools. Schools. Yeah, <laughs> schools. And so I, I really um, admire your efforts to to change it, and I, I hope that the pressure will continue here in Montgomery to get that changed. Um, part of what we want to do on We Teach Us podcast is reimagine education. And this to me is a huge part of that because so much of our history is is a lie or it's been sort of, it's a revisionist history or we tell a romanticized version of what mm-hmm. happened. And I think the only way for us to really change what's happening is to tell the truth. Um, so I really, um, I'm so happy that you all, the progress that you've already done, but that it, you know, it's something that 
I know it might not look like it now in Montgomery. I think there's a lot of opposition, but I, I think with the right amount of pressure, I think it, it will happen mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre, too, because when I was growing up, it wasn't – people didn't like the fact that I had Native ancestry. I was bullied for it, and now it's like, yeah, speak up. And so it's just, you know – it's weird being on that end of the spectrum now where it, I'm being told that it's okay to speak up. How I mean, how does it feel? Do, does it feel empowering or does it feel it, scary? It, it feels a little bit scary because of how, how bullied my family was. Mm. Um, it, it's, just, it's just kind of strange. It's still kind of like, it's just new because it, it just wasn't that way growing up. <laughs> so... This whole conversation with getting Columbus Day changed to Indigenous People's Day, this goes right along with the ways American history in schools is told with an imperialist perspective that leads to revisionism and romanticizing of history regarding Native people and or Native people's complete erasure in our history books um, in many public schools across the nation. Can you expound on ways that you've personally seen this in our school system, this sort of... uh, either revisionist history or complete erasure of of Native Americans? Yeah, uh, they hardly touched on Native American history at all when I was in school. I remember being in ninth grade and being like, when are are we going to learn about, like, the creeks that were here? Because the Prattville High School sits on what used to be my grandfather's land. And so, of course, I'm thinking about when are we going to learn about the history of his people? And we, we really never did, wow. honestly. We learned about the same, the same European history over and over and over again. By the time you got to 12th grade, you already knew what was going to be on the history test because you had already learned it three times over or, well, well, from 6th grade to 12th grade. That wasn't, <laughs> my math was so wrong. <laughs> but you learned it, you learned it so many times over that you already knew, you know, what was what going were, on? Yeah, you already knew what was going on. We touched a little bit on African history, which I also think that they need to touch on more because the fact that I didn't know that they sold slaves around the water fountain until I was like 24 is ridiculous. Mm. They, sh- I, they should teach that in the school systems. The fact that the riverfront was one of the main ports for slaves here. Right. Right here in Montgomery. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it wildly... Um, it was after inter- the international slave trade was abolished that the domestic slave trade really took off. And Montgomery itself and the area you're talking about became a hub of yes. slave trade, one of the largest ones in yeah. the country. Yeah. And it's not taught here. No. So, Tori, you grew up here in the Montgomery area and you went to public school here um, your whole life, right? I grew up in uh, Prattville, okay. in Otago County. And I went to public school in Prattville. Okay. K through 12. Okay, so your whole mm-hmm. schooling whole experience life, yeah. was public. Mm-hmm. And Valerie, you grew up in South Dakota. That's true. And what was your schooling experience like growing up? Um, well, I grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in a little town called Wombly. My graduating class was a class of 14. Um, our, our school name was Crazy Horse School after one of the chiefs, which there were several other schools that were named after chiefs, American Horse, Little Wound, Red Cloud. Um, in growing up in that manner, 
you know, when we talk about what was your curriculum like regarding Columbus Day and Thanksgiving and, you know, it wasn't as, like, you know, here I, I can tell the time of year it's going to come. I have my own children that go to school here in the public huh. school system. I already know what's coming up for Columbus Day. I know when Trilliteers is coming up. I know when Thanksgiving comes up. And in each of those scenarios, I've had to go back with all three of my children and re-explain that these people are not heroes, hmm. you know, and re-explain that we can't self-identify one particular thing and think it applies to 572 tribes across the country, you know. Right. And also that Trail of Tears that, you know, even though that wasn't in my particular history for South Dakota, it was in a, in a way where we more or less were dealing with um, wars and massacres. But in the Trail of Tears here, you know, her history books are like, yeah, they're they're like heroes, you know. And it's like, no, they're not. They had people that were walking. They were your age. And if they didn't make it, they just didn't make it, mm. you know. So you're, um, you, you grew up in South, going to a school on the reservation in yes. South Dakota. And mm-hmm. your children, do they go to public school here? I had two that, um, I've been here for 20 years now. Okay. I had two that have come through the mug, three in the Montgomery public school, two in regular public school and one in a magnet. Okay. So how would you compare? I mean, so you already sort of talked about how you're having to reteach your own kids, some of the warped history that they're learning in school. How would you compare the history that's taught in the public schools here from what you grew up learning on the school in the reservation? You know, I don't think that when we were growing up in South Dakota at that particular time, there wasn't really a certain reverence for history, you know, just like world history, Western civilization, U.S. history. We just were kind of very brief on that. We had a lot more concentration in other areas. Okay. So coming here, you know, and having to watch them go through this pre-1800 and, you know, after this point, it's kind of like, well, it's still the same themes. It's been the same theme, you know, with each of them. Like nothing has changed. And it almost feels like... um you know, part in fault is I, w- I would say there's so much information out there now, you know, and even my youngest one, she didn't believe me when I told her about the Constitution. And I said, the Iroquois helped with the Constitution. And she said, no, they didn't. I said, yeah, they did. It's the great law of peace. Uh. I had to literally go find a video for her uh, and, and an article to prove it because her teacher said so, you know. Wow. And things like that are irritating because, uh, you know, you you would think that if my child is learning it the wrong way and I have to reteach them, then the other parents are so disadvantaged, you know, in terms of what, what they're offering. And I place part of that on educators that they have access to more information that they shouldn't keep relying on the same study plans again and again and again. You know? Right. And I mean, I, well, what I know is education here, it, there is an agenda and there's an agenda to tell history in a certain way. Tori, you were saying uh, you in school, you learned the same European mm-hmm. history over and over and over again. Do you remember at any point in your schooling, your, any of your teachers covering Native American? And, and it's, it's weird to even say Native American history because it should be our history, but it's mm-hmm. not. So do you, do you remember Native American history being covered? I, I really do don't I remember briefly touching on it I think in fifth grade and I think once again 
in ninth grade for a very short time. It's like a like a paragraph. I don't remember it being very much more than that. Do you remember like what was taught? Like what exactly was no. even? I I don't remember because I I learned honestly most of that history from my grandparents and my aunts and aunts and uncles because we knew we knew who our grandparents were, who our ancestors were, and they made sure that I knew. Columbus didn't discover America, first of all, but also this is where you're from. This is where your your grandmother's parents were from, you know. But I don't remember learning just about anything in school. Both of you have had very different experiences in the schooling system. Mm-hmm. Tori, um, as a black native growing up in Montgomery area, and specifically in Prattville, which is known for the white flight in a predominantly white um, schooling area mm-hmm. and then Valerie as an Oklahoma Lakota student growing up in a school on a reservation you've had very differing sort of perspectives and experiences mm-hmm. in school so what is it like from your perspective what was schooling like in America for you <laughs> <laughs> I have to take a deep breath on that one uh, it was very very difficult uh, my grandmother's were picked on because uh, being a mixed native in the I get I mean in this area at least was not good. It was not good on the white perspective and it wasn't good on the black perspective. Mm. So you were just kind of in the middle alone. Mm. And so I got I started getting picked on when I was like five years old riding the bus. And some of these kids were in high school. Wow. Because and this was because me and my sister. Uh, when when we went to school, we would get off at my grandmother's house and we would stay with my grandmother all summer. And so they knew who both of my grandmothers were and they knew that they had Native ancestry and they just picked and picked and picked. So wow. it, was, it was not easy where I was. I don't know about Valerie. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you both, I can tell you both sides because... Again, I'm a mother, um, so I've seen that aspect of it. So obviously, I, I grew up in South Dakota on a reservation. We know that. I've also been here with my st- with my children, and in the midst of that, I'm having to watch them have this identity crisis mm-hmm. of um, trying to conceptualize to other people who they are, you know. And so in that process, they feel like they never really truly fit in anyway, mm-hmm. you know. But we've made it so. You know, in in uh, in them being in school here, that they have that ability to have a well-rounded group of friends that they could rely on. Now, my personal experience in Alabama um, was a little bit different. I said, you know, because a lot of people were like, "Well, why would you want to be in Alabama?" And I said, "Well, it's just like South Dakota anyway. You know, what I mean, <laughs> 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 it's the same. It's the same systematic racism right. anyway. Except I'm I'm watching it at a different." angle I've already I already know what the discrepancies are and I watch it with the black community versus the white community and I'm the oddball out hmm. and I'm trying to you know tell my my co-workers or what have you you know we we see this and this is how we try to handle it you know but this constant warring of each other is is to their own detriment hmm. so before we uh started the 
official interview, we were talking about you growing up and you were talking about sort of the teachers and how the the sort of school system worked on the reservation. Are you able to speak to that a little bit and just explain like how it looked, what, who, who was teaching you, what was going on there? Okay. Um, well, like I said, it, it was a, I had a small class and our teachers came in from out of state. It was a federal contract. Um, so it wasn't anything to leave school one year, come back. And I had a whole new slew of teachers. You know, we had some people that preferred to live on the reservation and stayed on the reservation the entire time, you know, and retired and died there, you know, as beloved teachers. But, you know, having that premise of working with all these different outside entities, it helped um, in terms of being able to associate a little bit more with people on the outside because, you know, you're on the reservation, you're in your own culture, you know, we stay to ourselves and, you know, we just keep this process. But, you know, using that education as a foundation um, of having my culture around me made it an easier scenario when I had to, when I left to be able to keep myself centered, Hmm. you know? So, and and now your kids are kind of in the invert, well, the opposite situation of that right. in public schools here. And you were saying that it's like a fight to try to reteach all these things that are being warped or taught to them in the wrong way. It's true. It's true. And then keep keep them in their culture, centered in their culture as well, you know, being so far away. Right. Because... Um, and and I'm not sure if we you said this during the interview or before we were talking, but one of the things that people do in America is just this like broad brushstroke that you know Native American. I put that in quote, and everybody is the same. And so I imagine um, in this area there are not a lot of opportunities outside of home for your children to learn about Oglala Lakota ways and practices and things. Well, not here, no. Okay, yeah. so that would have been potentially a benefit growing up on the reservation to at least, like you said, be surrounded by culture grounded in that. And then the teachers coming from outside, even if it, even if they are problematic or whatever, at least they go again or something. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There were some good ones. I'll say that there were some good ones. (laughs) Okay, good. So what are overt ways that you've seen this settler colonialist, ideas, violence, and terror manifested in the education system, um, in the system at large, and in our schools and classrooms? I'll just start with the fact that when I was in, uh, I think it was sixth grade, and my teacher said Columbus Day, and I raised my hand and said, but my ancestors were here first, I was considered to be a disruption to the classroom. Wow. And I got in trouble. What, What exactly, what did they do? I just, I just had to shut up. That's, that's crazy. Because I was being a disruption. So. So just a complete, like, non-acknowledgement of any of that. Yes. And there was also a Trail of Tears pep rally that I tried to speak up for when I was in high school. I was a majorette and um, we were playing against the Weetumpka Indians. I actually did a speech and I included this point in there. Um, I was trying to like. I was like telling my band director, like we like this should not be happening. I was a member of the SGA. Nobody listened to me. Nobody cared because they they couldn't sympathize with it. And a part of that was probably uh, 
a result as well of them not learning Native American history and knowing knowing that you do not poke fun at the Trail of Tears. Right. So this was when you say Trail of Tears pep rally, they were saying like Trail of Tears, Trail of Tears. Oh yeah. my god. No, they took some of the members of the I was completely disgusted. They took some of the members of the SGA um and tied tied the girls, a few of the girls, uh hands behind their back, threw them threw them over their shoulders and they made little paper headdresses. Yeah. And because I was a majorette, if I didn't dance at this pep rally, I would have been kicked out oh my of goodness. my position as majorette, which it, I can't remember if it was my senior year or not, but I'd been twirling since I was eight years old. And so that was my passion. I was going to college. I got a scholarship to twirl baton. So it wasn't like I was just going to, you know? Yeah. It was It was almost like they, they forced me to be against my own culture and Wow. At that moment, I was I was so irritated and I was so disgusted, but it was like there was nothing I could do. Wow, I that's wild. And then even within that, you we bring up you bring up the the name of Wetumpka. What what's their the school uh, name? Oof. Did you say the Redskins or? No, it wasn't the Redskins. I think it's just the Wetumpka Indians. If Indians, I'm not, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Which is another form of this violence that takes place and i even know like in in the town i grow up in there's there's a two schools one the school name is the the mascot if you want to call it that is the braves and the other one are the redskins and it's this that i think that's another form of this violence where it's like an appropriation of certain ideas that are also very racist ideas Mm -hmm. um that are used in our schools i mean this is a middle school and an elementary school in in my town Mm -hmm. and then like you said well they think it's okay because it's coming top down because you're talking about nfl teams that have designations like that you know so it it continues and it perpetuates this cycle of it's okay it's not okay you know you know how would we how would we like to do something that was more in line with the Holocaust and things of that nature. We would never do that. Right. You know, and Redskins itself, you know, knowing that that was what we were called when we were hunted for a little, for a coin Mm -hmm. to completely eradicate us. It's even worse. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, just terrible. And then you have predominantly white people who are like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a name. It's- I'm 116th Cherokee and I'm not offended. Right. And people love to claim this <laughs> fraction. Where did that number come from? I, I have no idea. 116th. I just want to circle back because when um, Tori was talking, Valerie, you had something. When we when I first brought up the question of in the ways that these settler colonialist ideas, violence and terror are manifested in the education system, in the school system, um, something she said sparked your thing. And the- I would say colonial, colonialist in that we have this scenario where we're trying to perpetuate all the Native Americans in one theme. I know my youngest daughter was five when her history got whitewashed from her. She had, my grand, my mother was living with us here at that time. She's full-blooded, um, Oglala Lakota, and was here and used to make her all kinds of stuff to go to school with. And Jasmine came home and she had a t-shirt that was stained in coffee with little 
little fringes on it with little pony beads and it had snowbird across there and had her little paper head headband with this fake feather popping out and she was mortified because at even at five she knew that that had no place you know and you know for her grandmother to see it on top of that i mean that bothered her a lot and that was like probably around thanksgiving time or right right where okay and so it was like the school's interpretation of right all native americans (laughs) that's just ridiculous and so i mean thanksgiving is right here this time right now is exactly when a lot of this happens in America. Uh, All over the country, there were schools that continue to perpetuate this sort of romanticized idea of what Thanksgiving is and little children dress up as pilgrims, what what they call pilgrims and Indians. Right. Exactly. um, What, I mean, what what do you have to say about this? As far, that is as far as that romanticized version goes, that the Indians helped the pilgrims to survive and they all feasted together and lived happily ever after. That is as far as it goes. And, you know, when you're talking about Thanksgiving itself for Native Americans, you know, we take that time and just celebrate our families. You know, we, some people are still cooking traditional foods, um, but it's not exactly Thanksgiving. You know, we, we, we're thanks for each other that we're still alive. Right. (laughs) Right. That's that's too real. <laughs> Honestly, just winging off, I really am thankful to be alive because the two cultures that I came from, it's like, first of all, how did how did my family end up still being here after all that? I I've thought about it a lot. I honestly have because um but being from an African culture and a native culture, it's like, wow. You know? Yeah. So she's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my, my next question is kind of uh, generally about how imperialism and this like settler colonialism is linked to patriotism in America. Um, what are ways you've seen th- this link between being an American and what that means, what it means to be an American and how that's tied to imperialism and how... Um, other histories are left out of that. So first of all, you know, and this is where we go back to what do you believe versus what do you know? You know, what we know is, is that the United States, Native Americans, we have all these treaties, we're sovereign nations, and yet we still have to stand up for the flag for the same reason, the same flag that came bearing down on us and massacred and Mm. created wars. We still have to know the Star Spangled Banner, you know, all of those things that make us American when in fact we're sovereign. Right. You know, so with that, you know, it's kind of like a scenario where I'll I'll stand with you, but I'm I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it. You know, I don't believe it and I'm not going to say it. Right. That's funny you said that because I usually stand and I'll put my hand over my heart, but I just don't say it because I don't, I went back to another like older religion. And I think religion is a big part of, um, systematic racism. Mm. I went back to the old ways. And so I don't like for people to push religion on me. You know, I mean, 
we just have certain beliefs. And if you're not a part of that belief, it's like you're anti-American and it's just not, it's not so. Yeah. I mean, especially in this political climate, you see Christianity specifically tied to this very conservative um, right-wing politics. Right. And they, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but sometimes that was used to uh, put even slaves in line you know god wants you to be a you know obedient slave so absolutely and and all of like colonialism a lot of it was this idea this evangelical Mm -hmm. idea that these white people from europe are coming to save indigenous people whatever country it might be and it happened here in america too i mean the declaration of independence is a great example of all of this because you know they have us memorize the first 10 lines well nobody ever goes further than that in school because they're like oh i had to remember these first 10 lines okay good that was it no if you read further than that it gets a bit racist yeah merciless indian savages yeah so yeah and that's i mean that's what's wild is and and you all touch on it with your activism with Columbus Day, but that that is taught as this like amazing document that mm-hmm. is for America and and yet it's like you said, it has yeah. this racist language in it. It's almost like people don't remember that slavery was legal at once. Right. So everything that's a law right now doesn't mean that it's right and it's just. Exactly. Well you think about how they try to incorporate you into being an American and and go and thereabouts when you're asking me, do you prefer Native American? You know, it's I I would think that that's the same premise: Hispanic American, Asian American, you know, Irish American. You know, everybody gets in their little box, but we're all American. We're all we all believe that you know America is great and we we drink the Kool Aid. You yeah. know, and and ideal in an ideal situation. We should try to understand more about each other. Mm. And and I think that's actually the way forward. We have access to the information to know more about each other. And we, as personal people, we should hold our own selves accountable for, for that, even though it's not even taught in school, you know. Right. There are people living in America today who do not feel responsible for actions of their ancestors. They don't feel responsible for actions of the past and they kind of have this attitude of oh well that happened a long time ago it's over let's forget about it um and specifically with regards to you know a whole stealing of land a a genocide trail of tears all these atrocious things that have happened it's just kind of like this ah well it happened it's over now um what what would you all say to those people who have this flippant attitude about that i think if we don't come to one accord, one memory. I mean, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice, you know, because some of these things that you think that are in the past, they still exist. You know, the discrepancies in healthcare that were promised to the Native American people, Native American people, um, all over based off of treaties, that's still in play. The over-sexualization of women and murdering people that is still in play with murder missing indigenous women. Mm-hmm. You have land that's being 
see unseated, unseated land that is being taken by the government that is still in play, you know? So all of these things, we think they're in the past, but they're not, they still exist just in different forms of control, mm. you know, whereas one time, a long time ago, the main sort, main reason how they controlled everybody was genocide. Mm. You know, you talk about imperialism. It was genocide first. Mm. And then we decided that we were Christian and we needed to save everybody. And in saving everybody, we figured out that if we, we killed the Indian and saved the man, then that takes us, you know, that would make it more presentable and more acceptable. And so a lot of children are being found today and returned back to their native land that had to go to these boarding schools. Mm you know, and died from disease, from abuse, from, you know, they ran away. They they were across the country, you mm. know, ran away trying to get home because of these abuses. And it's just got this domino effect. And I think that when we, we say it's in the past, if it still exists today, we should have learned from it and moved forward, right? right. Found ways to move forward. One of the ways that it's also still in play is um, I know my family, and this is probably the case for other people too, we're still searching for relatives. We don't even know where my uh, where my grandmother's people ended up. I heard they were on the Trail of Tears, and we have found, like, no trace of them. They were just wiped away. Hmm. And so I have had to continuously search and search and search. I finally went out to Oklahoma and, you know, found more of what I was looking for, but we're still searching for who we are. So I think that when we speak this way, you know, you get a lot of white people that will say, you know, they get offended. You know, I'm not asking you to apologize for your ancestors. I'm asking you to learn it and go forward with it and be an ally of everybody that, you know, you meet along the way. Right. And and so it's like it, it's wild that the response is to be offended. Like people are literally being offended that there was a genocide like that doesn't even make sense. It's it's nonsensical, but right. it happens every day. And it's like actually the no. I mean, it's literally how history is taught with that chip on our shoulder kind of thing. That's how history is taught in our schools. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, you know, you're talking about today problems. Um, the government repeats the same things as well. Right. They have not learned either because, you know, like today we have all these children that are immigrant children that have gone missing. Mm. It's the same thing as the boarding schools and they're doing the same thing. They're adopting them out They're, they're They don't care where they are, you know? And it's like, well, so now we're seeing this resurgence from the boarding schools again, where this whole group of kids are going to be lost because they don't know where they are and they don't care where they are, you know? Right. What are ways that educators and specifically public education teachers actively participate the harmful sort of imperialist settler colonial violence and ideas in schools? I would say by not being, well, at least one thing is not being objective to the diversity in the classroom. Okay. The fact that my I was on the other side of the spectrum, uh, the black native spectrum, and my white teacher wasn't hearing me out was like like I mean what do you do with that? Right. So being being more open to the diversity that is literally sitting in your classroom right. for one. Okay. 
I understand, you know, from the education part of it that, you know, we, we have these standards that we have to adhere to and that's what they are monitored by also, you know, in their own plans and having to get all, prepare all that. But in the rest of the world outside of Alabama, people are making huge initiatives to get speakers in, to talk to them. They're having mass trainings and breaking out different portions of Native American studies for their teachers. And if we could just encompass some of that into our teaching and, you know, it would be better than what's happening right now. I didn't say learn everything you can about Native America. I just need you to learn about the differences. I need you to learn about why it happened this way, uh, what it looks like currently, and what the future holds, you know, and, and keeping that narrative going instead of trying to erase it, you know. Right. And then you get these people that you meet along the way, and they're like, oh, my God, I didn't even know Native Americans still existed, you know. And, and you get that, and you, you get that, the hypocrisy of, do y'all still live in teepees? Do y'all chase buffalo? What do you eat? You know, right. you get all of that, all of that, because they have they have encompassed everything into one little thing, mm. when we are so much more than that. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm a true believer in um, they should put pull a little bit more, take more initiative and pull a little bit more in the curriculum. There's plenty out there. Um, in terms of resources. As educators or as teachers, um, people who work in schools, what are ways that people can dismantle imperialism in their setting? Whether it's just a teacher in their classroom or maybe someone in a school setting, what are ways that we can begin to actively break this down? You want to get the the student to critical analysis, Mm. you know, and for that they need the background if only just a general background, because there's so many histories to choose from that as an educator, you would not be able to encompass all that in your classroom anyway. But you're talking about culture, you're talking about um, population, you're talking about things that they have where they are, you know, so all of that is just too much. But if you could just simply get them to a point where they understand that the imperialistic things that have taken place have made it so that we've lost each other, you know. Um, you're talking about, I mean, there's so much that you could, like you couldn't even put that in 20 minutes. You know? Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, I've asked you a question yeah. that... <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to be succinct. Entire books I'm trying have, to be succinct could be written on. <laughs> about it. And it's kind of like when you talk about the very beginning of the doctrine of discovery to the 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 laws written to eradicate Native Americans, to the laws written to erase the culture, to the laws written to erase the religion and, you know, the languages. Um, And then you have eco-terrorism. And then you have, you know, all these things, they layer upon each other. And you think it only affects Native Americans, but if it affects us, it's going to affect everybody. Right. You know. Mm -hmm. I I really want to thank you, uh, Tori and Valerie, for um spending this time and it was it was really powerful for me to hear the different perspectives and hear everything you had to share and thank you so much for joining me here thank you thank you for people out there listening how can they uh get in contact with you how can they follow you if that's possible on social media i'm on facebook as tori nicole jackson but on instagram uh i post a lot a lot more of my art 
I think, on Instagram. Um, it's Tori Nicole Arts. And people can look up your art on there? Mm-hmm. So we created, uh, when we talk about dismantling imperialism, and on our own we created a group, which started as an event group, but now we tried to turn that into more of an educational um, implementation of different things that we see happening in Indian country for everybody that's interested. So you can find us at Alabama Indigenous Coalition. Um, we will probably be doing much more in the in the months coming up. So keep an eye out for us. Awesome. And that's um, on Facebook? Yes. Okay, great. So say it one more time. It's Alabama Indigenous Coalition. Okay, great. Hey, Mr. Dalton, it's Shannon Finnegan calling, um, loving the podcast so far. Thank you so much for doing this important work. I want to respond to your question about dismantling imperialism in the classroom um, and countering a historical imperialist narrative. So I actually teach my students about the state standards, and we do an activity where we examine the Minnesota state history standards, and we actually count up how many of them are about Europe and how many of them are about other places. And then we take a look at those few standards that are about Africa, Latin America, or Asia, and we look at what they cover and how they often cover the negatives, right, slavery and the slave trade and how they were victims of imperialism and that there's very little there that is celebratory about other cultures uh, in the world. And so just making students aware of who's making decisions about what is being taught in the classroom uh, is super powerful and really important to counter some of those narratives and to make them question what it is that they're being taught in the mainstream. Um, <clears throat> I think my own personal experience, I was a social studies, I'm a social studies teacher, so I grew up with an excellent social studies education. I went to college for social studies education, like I was immersed in history, and I didn't know anything about the Haitian Revolution until I started teaching at SDL, and I learned about it from Kwaku, and that it was part of the curriculum um, at SDL with lots of Haitian students. So there's something problematic there, right? I'm going back through the Minnesota State History Standards, and I don't see the words Haitian Revolution anywhere. Um, and so I teach it now uh, in Minnesota, now that I'm back here, and I talk with my students about why isn't this in the state standards? Why aren't we required to teach it? And of course, engaging students in those dialogues and making them aware um, that there are people who decide what it is that they're being taught in the classroom, I think is something really important to do what this question is all about, counter those imperialist narratives. And then, of course, I say screw the standards and let's bring in some um, some real learning and do different curriculum that celebrates indigenous peoples and what we can be proud of in that culture. Uh, I also acknowledge the fact that I myself am white and there's something problematic about even me being the teacher in the classroom that's guiding them through that. So thanks so much and I hope you are doing well and I wish you well. Is it your homework? To learn more about Valerie and Tori's efforts and to join them in their work, join the Alabama Indigenous Coalition group on Facebook. For a good resource to see Hollywood's role in perpetuating negative stereotypes of Native Americans, I recommend the 2009 documentary, Real Engine. 
To be more aware about the native people who inhabited the land you live on, I recommend downloading the native app, which uses your location to inform you of which indigenous people occupied the land you are on. Some books related to this episode's topic that I recommend are An Indigenous People's History of United States, Revisioning American History by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. In 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. Lessons from Turtle Island, Native Curriculum in Early Childhood Classrooms by Guy W. Jones and Sally Muma. On the extended learning page, I have also included some links to some Thanksgiving alternative lesson plans and resources. For the links to the previously mentioned resources, links to the articles mentioned in the This Week in the News segment, and more information and resources about this episode's topic, visit the extended learning page on weteachuspodcast.com. Exit ticket. America as we know it today was established on imperialist exploits and through the horrific genocide of indigenous people who were here first. Though we cannot change our history and we might not be personally responsible for how this country was established, we are all responsible for the ways in which we speak about our past. We have the responsibility to tell the truth. We can no longer afford to parrot whitewashed ahistorical revisionist narratives that solely portray American imperialism in a positive, heroic light. We have to be honest about who we were. We have to be honest about who we are. And in this honesty, maybe we will begin to find solutions for some of the injustices we are surrounded by. Or, at the very least, when we are truthful about history, we are in a better place to not repeat it. As educators, we have to work to dismantle imperialism in our classrooms, school communities, and the broader system. We have to start where we are and do what we can. Change begins with us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of We Teach Us. Visit our website at weteachuspodcast.com. Follow and interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at We Teach Us. Like our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash We Teach Us Podcast. And call in and leave a voicemail to give your input for the You Do segment at 615-348-7303. Lastly, subscribe to, rate, and review We Teach Us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on and spread the word. We, we teach, teach us. us.